we um, we began a conversation for this season um, of Christmas and Advent. Uh, Christmas is, is such a big deal in our church that we have we break it into two parts. We have the part before Christmas, which is Advent, and then the part after, which is Christmas. So, um, so during this during this time, we've been we've been looking at the idea of gift giving. Uh, it's it's obviously a part of the Christmas season, and what we've been what we've been uh, talking about is the way that um, in the same way we enjoy giving gifts, so does God. You know, for all the same reasons, we enjoy seeing the the look of delight on somebody's face. We enjoy them thinking, you know, oh, you remembered. Uh, God is the same way. God is our heavenly Father, and God enjoys giving us gifts. So, uh, last week we looked at the gift of hope, and uh, what we saw last week is that hope is a good thing. That um, that. Hope, and we know this just just from uh, uh, the secular world. We know that hope is a good thing. It leads to better health outcomes. It leads to greater happiness. Um, it's it's correlated with a, a better ability to to absorb pain. There's a lot of things that are good about hope. And uh, broadly, I would say that what hope is is hope is the re- remedy for despair. So so one of the things that God gives us is hope, and uh, that because because our hope is in the promises of God, we can have great big hopes that we don't have to scale down, we can actually scale up. We can say that that ultimately our hope is that God will return in, in, in Jesus to complete the work of salvation, and everything that has gone wrong with the world will be set right, that Jesus will restore the world to God's good purposes for the world. So that's a huge hope. And so one of the things we, we receive at Christmas or, or we're reminded of at Christmas is this hope we have in uh, the, the renewal of all things when Jesus returns. So, so that's, uh, that's the first thing we talked about. We talked about hope. Um, but the problem with hope is hope is in the future. By its by its nature, right? If it had already occurred, it wouldn't be hope; it would be reality. And l- let me let me illustrate this. Um, so um, maybe uh, I see some people are actually in Hawaii, but um, some of us just want to go to Hawaii. So um, suppose you're one of them. Suppose you know I don't know what you wouldn't enjoy about our our uh, wonderful Anchorage uh, uh, December, but suppose instead you decided you wanted to go to Hawaii, right? That is not a hope. That's a that's a wish. That's a kind of a daydream. That's a fantasy you might have, right? But when you buy tickets, right? When you book the travel, then it becomes a hope, right? We're going in January, or, or we're we're going right after Christmas. Whatever whatever your particular hope is, you have a hope because it is it has moved from this kind of vague abstraction to it hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. There is this thing that is absolutely going to happen. Except you know, there's always an asterisk, right? Because you know. It may not happen. Circumstances may come up, right? You may have some kind of a crisis in your life that you, you have to reschedule. Um, maybe the airline will go out of business. Maybe there'll be a volcano and airlines can't travel that day or, you know, who knows, right? There's all kinds of reasons why that future hope, even though it says it's as absolute as you can make it, still might not happen because it is still in the future. And it's that it's that uncertainty that is the problem, right? And if if um, if you have to if you have to reschedule, if if something can cause that hope to die, right? There are circumstances in our life that can cause that hope to fade or even die, and that's what I want to talk about today. Because we can have a great hope, but what keeps the hope alive? What is it that that keeps us from? From just giving up and saying, "Well, it's not going to happen." Now, if it's an airline trip, if you're going, you know, if you're only going to Hawaii, then then you know, you know, you can reschedule, or maybe not this week, but you know, next year or something, right? That, that you know that I can, I can, I can rekindle that hope 
um, somehow or another. But what if our hope is a really big hope? You know, the, the kind of hopes we talked about last week. What if you have a really big hope? How can you keep that hope alive? And the answer is faith. Faith is what keeps hope alive. Faith is the thing that connects our present to that future. The, that we have, we have a belief that it will happen. I, I believe the airline will be working. I believe that my health will be good enough to go to Hawaii. I believe that Alaska will still be cold and I'll want to go to Hawaii, right? You know, I, I have beliefs. I have faith and that is what keeps the hope alive. And so, um, the first point in our, in our uh, talk today is, uh, future hope connects with now by faith. The way that that future is connected with right now, our, our present circumstances, is by faith. Now, faith is kind of a religious word. Sometimes we, we say the same thing, but we use a different word because we don't want to sound religious. Um, but you don't have to be religious to have faith. People have faith in all kinds of things. Um, and, and it simply means to believe or to trust. So there's all kinds of ways that people believe things. You can believe the airlines. You can believe all kinds of things, right? There's lots of ways you can, you can believe, but, um, but we're gonna, we're gonna read today about some people who believed in something, but there's no reason we have, there's nothing in the, in the reading we're going to look at that gives us any reason to think that their belief was, was religious. Uh, we're gonna read about the Magi. And they believed in something. They they had a strong faith, as we'll see, uh, but it wasn't necessarily religious. There's certainly some, nothing that Matthew tells us that makes us uh, uh, think that it's a religious belief. A couple of centuries before the time of Christ, uh, the word magi actually did mean it was a particular priestly caste in, in a religion in Persia. But uh, time has passed, and, and by the first century, it had, it had lost that meaning, or it, that was only a small part of its meaning. It had come to mean people who were scholars, and in particular, scholars of the night sky. Magi were people who we would say today are astronomers, they, or, or maybe astrologers. Um, but they, they, had, they had studied the night sky, they knew what to expect, and they had ideas about what the significance of the, the movements of the stars and the planets were, for the things on earth. So they believed in something, but there's no, nothing that, that tells us it was a religious belief. They just believed in something. Uh, today we would say, you know, they trusted the science. You know, the, the, the science of their day was that the things up in the sky mattered here on the earth, and they trusted that. That was their belief. That was the faith that they had, the Magi did. So, so, uh, let's, um, let's, uh, uh, begin looking at this passage here in chapter two of Matthew's, uh, uh, biography of Jesus. If you're worshiping with us online, there's a little tab in the app. You can go to the Bible, uh, tab and you can actually follow along there or we'll have it on the screen. All right. So, well, Matthew begins by telling us that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the territory of Judea, uh, during the rule of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. So that's how he begins this this chapter, and he's giving us a lot of place names. So very quickly, uh, where's he talking about? He's talking about the Eastern Hemisphere or the Middle East, and he says they came from the east. So where did they come from? Probably not directly east, because if you look at a map, directly east of Jerusalem is really not that hospitable. And so people would go kind of around it. They would go up uh, and around the, the Fertile Crescent. So they came from someplace in the east, and we don't know how far east. It was far enough away Matthew didn't bother telling us the name. They weren't just like across the Jordan, because people would have known the name there. But they came someplace where it's like, you know, you know, Steubenville, Pennsylvania. You know, it's like I have, you know, 
do you know where that is? No, so why would I bother telling you? I might tell you Pennsylvania, but, but telling you a city is no point. So Matthew doesn't bother telling us where in the east they came from. If they came from uh, Babylon, the, the map there shows us uh, if they had come from Babylon, uh, modern-day Iraq, that would probably be the closest place they would have come from maybe someplace else along the, the Fertile Crescent, but they might have come from further east. They, they might have come from Persia or India or Eastern Asia. So there's, there's no telling where they came from. They came from someplace east. And if they came from Babylon, that's a popular guess, um, uh, if they came from Babylon, that's about a 600-mile trip. So think about it. You've got a camel, and camel is good for you know, a leisurely 10 miles a day, or if you're really pushing it, you can get maybe 25 miles a day. So you're looking at a month to two months or even more um, to take that trip. And, you know, you don't do that lightly. You know, you don't, you know, I don't know what it costs to rent a camel for two months. <laughs> two, two months there and two months back, right? So I don't know what, what that, what they're thinking, right? But that's a, that's an expensive investment right there. And that's assuming they don't have to buy the camel out, right? They've got to outfit themselves. They've got to probably have protection. You know, if I gave you a Jeep, would you want to drive along that path today, right? You know, look at the news. Right? If you want to wind up in an orange jumpsuit, maybe, right? So you're going to probably want to bring some, some uh, armed guards. You're going to want to go as part of a caravan. This is a big undertaking. These, you know, we, we have the little pictures on the greeting cards with just three guys on camels, right? But it was probably a big deal. They probably needed other camels for their provisions and they needed some other people who would help protect them from, you know, bandits or whatever. So, so, uh, they've come a long way. What would inspire them? to come a long way. So here they are. They're, they're headed to the, the area around Jerusalem. And it says they came to Bethlehem of Judea. Um, so Bethlehem in the territory of Judea. The, the writer here is telling us it's not the other Bethlehem. There's a Bethlehem in the south, which is Bethlehem in Judea. And then there's the other one up in the north, and it's the south one. So they came to Jerusalem. So they came to that area. And um, uh, so that's where they have arrived. And um, <clears throat> they have taken this big trip, this huge trip, um, because they have faith that there's something they're going to find there, that they have a hope there is a new king, that is a, is a concrete hope, as concrete as they could have in the days before you know, instantaneous communication. Right? They, they believed something because of what they knew about the sky, and they had this great faith. And um, maybe... maybe uh, I, I know I know this was a misconception I used to have, and it may be uh, a misconception that you you have had or still have. It's the idea that great faith is a description of the person who has the faith. That that there are there are certain people there. They're the great saints among us who have great faith, and they're particularly good at believing things. But that's not great faith, or that's not typically great faith. Great faith is usually not a, a, a description of the of the person who is doing the believing, it's a description of the thing that they believe in. Let me give you an example. I have great faith the sun will rise tomorrow. Is there anybody here who doesn't have great faith that the sun will rise tomorrow, right? We all have great faith the sun will rise tomorrow because because it's got a long history of doing that without ever, you know, any problems. Um, and because because we have some understanding of the way the world works, and you know the Earth is turning and it'll face the sun again tomorrow morning, right? We have great faith in that, even though some of us may be kind of mediocre believers, right? It's not about how good we believe; it's about having overwhelming evidence 
And, and in fact, sometimes skeptics will say that. They'll, they'll say, you know, the problem with you religious people is you're making extraordinary claims, but you don't have extraordinary evidence. So for these people, think, think how much evidence it would take for you to rent a camel, right? Load it up with supplies and take a 60 day trip. You know, that's, that's serious belief. And they have great faith. They have great faith. Um, uh, and that is a reflection not of the subject, not of the person who's doing the believing, but of the thing that they believe in. I believe the sun will rise tomorrow. That's the object of my faith. But I'm just the person doing the believing. So great faith describes its object, not its subject. So what gave them this great faith? Well, the, the, they were scholars. They were magi. That, that's what they did. And they weren't dummies. You know, they, they didn't understand the world the way we do, but they weren't dummies. You know, they were like, you know, the people who built Stonehenge. They had studied the sky. They knew the way it worked. They knew that, you know, on the 3rd of January, the sun would rise there or whatever. You know, they, they were students. They had studied the way that the world worked, the way that the skies worked in particular. And they, they saw something that surprised them, something that was unexpected, something that told them something different was going on, that a new thing had happened, that a king had been born far off to the west. And so that's what they had faith in. They had faith in their, in the, the hope was in this new king, and the faith was that the skies told them about it. So that's, that's where they are coming from. And, um, uh, we, um, we have seen that they travel this great distance, and they finally arrive in Jerusalem, and they start asking around, so where's the king? A perfectly reasonable question. They get there, and they say, we've seen his star in the east, and we've come to honor him. And word gets around. Somehow, King Herod finds that there's these people in town who are asking about a new king. Well, Herod was Herod was a suspicious person, so... By this time, by by you know whatever this is, four or five BC, um, Herod is has already killed two of his sons and one of his wives because he thought they were plotting against him. So uh, that's the backdrop of these people showing up in town saying, "Hey, where's the new king?" The way Herod got his job is there had been a, a, a previous um, a dynasty ruling that that territory. And the two claimants to the throne, when the old king died, the, the two new people fighting over who got to be king, Herod was neither one of them. Herod said, hey, Rome, this place is unstable because people are fighting over the king. Who, who gets to be king? But if you make me king, you won't have that problem anymore. I'll be a loyal king under you. And so Herod knew a lot about when kings started fighting over who had the throne, that, that that's when trouble arrived. So Herod is, is super paranoid about any threats to his, his kingship, and uh, he is uh, very disturbed. It says he was troubled. Um, I looked at some different translations, and one of them said that he was um, frightened. Another one said he was terrified. So he is troubled. Um, and it says everyone in Jerusalem was troubled with him, because when a king like Herod is troubled, uh, you're, you're troubled too if you're anywhere within uh, the same zip code. So Herod is troubled. And so he gathers the chief priests and the legal experts and he asks them where the, where the Christ was going to be born. And they have an answer. They say it's uh, in, in Bethlehem of Judea, the nearby Bethlehem, for this is what the prophet wrote. You, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are uh, by no means are you least among the rulers of Judah, because from you will come one who governs 
who will shepherd my people Israel. So they are in the region of Jerusalem, and they say, hey, you magi, guess what? You're in luck, because it's actually not far from here. It's, in fact, about six miles from here. So um, you can, you know, you could literally see uh, Bethlehem from Jerusalem and vice versa if, you know, the trees weren't in the way and things. So you're so close, uh, you know, it's right over there. And then Herod secretly calls for the Magi. Now, Herod was was paranoid. Um, all, all the historians agree that he was paranoid. So he probably did everything in secret. In fact, there's speculation that when he talked to the chief priests and the the um, religious experts, that he talked to them separately in small groups to make sure their stories all agreed because that was the kind of guy he was. So he secretly calls for the Magi, and he found out from them the time when the star had first appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search carefully for the child. When you found him, report to me so that I too may go and honor him. And when they heard the king, they went. So this guy's crazy. I'm getting out of town as quickly as I can. So he's frightened. He's troubled. So they leave town. And look, the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. Now, as I read that, it's not clear to me, is, has the star disappeared? I've seen, I've seen people who have based their, their thinking on the idea that the star disappeared. Maybe it was just, hey, you know, it's a lot of hard math to figure out where the star is headed, you know, all that astronomy stuff. Why don't we just ask around? They will know about the king. So I don't know, I don't know if, if they're just saving themselves some effort. You know, they didn't have calculators back in those days. So maybe they're just saving themselves the trouble of doing the math, and so they're asking around on the street. Or maybe the star has actually vanished for a while, but now it reappears. Um, or now now they start looking at it again, and they see it going ahead of them. Um, and it says, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house, and they saw the child with Mary's mother. And then, as, as uh, we see on greeting cards and so forth, they fall to their knees. They honored him. Then they opened their treasure chest and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And because they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, my guess is that was an easy dream to believe. It's like anything I can do to avoid that guy, uh, you know, uh, I will. So they went back to their own country by another route. So, a couple of observations here. So, um, the first one is: is I wonder where are the religious experts? You know, they knew as soon as you asked him, where's the, where's the Christ going to be born? And they said, Bethlehem of Judea, because here's what the prophet said. They, they knew the answer, but they didn't go. And remember, you know, it's not far. It's, it's a six mile trip. It's a couple of hours walk, right? It's not a big deal. Why didn't they go? You know, presumably they have faith too, right? They're religious experts. They should have faith. And, and maybe they did, or maybe they just had a string of crackpots that month, and, and they just decided, you know, these guys are always coming through. But whatever it was, they, they had a hope. They knew what the, they knew who the Christ was. They knew what the Christ was promised to do, that he would, he would save the world. They knew about that. But they couldn't get out of their lethargy. They're just sitting there, you know, Herod says, tell me when it's gonna happen, and they say, you know, in Bethlehem of Judea, you know, whatever, and then they go back to whatever they're doing. They don't, they aren't curious enough about this to follow up. And compare that to these magi who have so much faith that, that, you know, what would it have taken at that point if, 
for, for them to turn around and say, oh, well, I guess we're not going to find it. You know, they've traveled 600 miles, maybe, maybe more. They've traveled this incredible distance, and they're told, you have six more miles to go. Is there anything that could have stopped them? You know, it's like, of course I'm going. You know, if you had told them it was another 600 miles, maybe they'd start thinking, maybe we're just confused, right? But, but six miles, that's, that's a rounding error. Of course they're gonna, they're gonna make that trip. And so, what is the difference? What is the difference between the religious experts who have knowledge and the, the Magi? The Magi have faith. And that faith leads them to action. The religious experts, they just stay where they're at even though it's such a short distance. But the Magi have faith, and the Magi, their faith leads them to Bethlehem. So, faith leads to action in the present. What fills the gap, right? The the faith is what, what connects me to my hope. But that faith is going to lead to action. It's going to it's going to ask me, what is my role in this? Do I have any role? Maybe I don't. But but it's an opportunity to say, wait a minute, I wonder if I need to do something here. If I've got faith, it's going to stir me to action. This is the season of Advent. It's an opportunity for the church to remember that, that Christ is going to return. And when he does, he will complete the work of salvation. That, that he will repair what's broken in the world. He will, he will remove from it all the sources of heartache and sorrow and crying. We can ask ourselves, is my faith strong enough to connect me to that hope, to keep that hope from fleeting away and just becoming, yeah, someday, maybe, maybe, who knows? Do I have a strong faith? And, and if so, what is it asking me to do? Maybe it's asking us to, to take a 600-mile trip. Maybe it's just saying, you know, six miles, just, just a simple action. Maybe it's simply shake off the cobwebs. But this idea that faith... Faith um, it, it should lead to action. And so during this Advent season, ask yourself, am I being invited into some kind of action? So the second observation is this. We know about the kings, right? We see greeting cards. Uh, this has been a figure of art. They aren't the kings. Um, that's from Psalm 72, but they kind of borrowed it. So the three kings, we don't know if there were three of them, but there's three gifts that are mentioned. What are the gifts? Who remembers? Frankincense. Gold and, right, you know, if you've heard this story, you probably remember the gifts, and so it's like three gifts, it must be three, three kings, right? That's where that comes from. So this idea that, uh, it's, it's a part of art, it's a part of song, there's all kinds of ways we remember the, the, the kings and the gifts they bring. But what's interesting to me is, is we jump right past verse 10 on our way to verse 11. Because it says, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. And that, that is a flat translation. They were filled with joy. They were filled with joy. If you look at some different translations, the NIV says they were overjoyed. The, um, um, the CSB says, says that they were uh, overwhelmed with joy. Um, my favorite was the uh, English Standard Version, which said they rejoiced exceedingly with a great joy. They were rolling on the floor laughing. You know, I mean, they couldn't believe how happy they could be. When they saw that star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So our last point, acting in faith leads to joy. They set out on this journey 600 miles ago 
two months ago. And now they have arrived at the conclusion. They see the star has stopped. And it gives them great joy. Acting in faith will lead to joy. As you consider during this Advent season, what action am I being called to? What what action is my faith requiring of me? Don't think of it as a duty. You know, it's like, uh, i got to do this again. Instead, say, what joy awaits those who act in faith? How can I have the kind of joy at Christmas that the Magi had? The answer is by acting in faith. Hope is in the future, but faith is in the present. Action is in the present. So this Advent, I invite you to rekindle your faith, to ask yourself, what do I believe in and what do my beliefs call me to do right now? Let's pray. Loving and holy God, we thank you for the story of the Magi. And we ask you, Lord, to to stir us and make us consider whether we are like the religious experts who knew about the Christ but couldn't be bothered to act on that belief. Or if we are like the, the Magi who only knew about the stars but whose faith was so strong that it inspired them to take a great journey. Lord, help us to know what we should do to act on our beliefs and give us confidence that As we do, it will lead to our joy. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.